Good morning. My name is Peter, and I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. I'm really excited to introduce him to you as I've gotten to know him. He is a wonderful guy, and I think about him in those terms all the time in my head. And I'm not sure why, but I just really like him. I think he is, his likability factor is really high, and I'd love for you to get to know him a little bit better. Brian, come on up and tell us a story. And uh, we had a little exchange of memos, and so we're wearing the same outfit. This is exactly the same brand uh, of jacket, so there we go. Thanks, Peter. I think the real reason I volunteered to storytell because I, I wanted to know what the introduction was going to be like. So, <laughs> um, But really, one of the things I like about Peter is the depths that he goes to research everything. Um, you can tell that by the length of his sermons. <laughs> you can also tell that I've, I've uh, gotten to have that perfect cup of coffee. I've enjoyed the, the stand-up paddleboard that he's researched and a great blazer, so <laughs> I appreciate that about you. Um, so this morning, I want to tell you all a story about how I got engaged to my lovely wife, Amy. She's uh, sitting over here. It's actually her 30th birthday. I won't make you all sing like Tony did. I remember how well that went. <laughs> um, so we were ready to get engaged. I was trying to think, how am I going to do this? I want to do something special. And as Amy can attest, I'm not that thoughtful. I'm really not very romantic. So I enlisted the help of my good friend, Chris Campbell, who many of you know, because um, he is thoughtful and even kind of romantic. Um, I remember a time when he was dating Kala. There was some special day, it was like her birthday or Valentine's or, I mean, you can see how good I am at this stuff. Um, but he was out of town, so he asked me to go to her work and put this gift on the hood of her car and flowers, so I thought he might be um, a big help. So I asked Chris, what do you think we should do? What should I do to propose? <laughs> um, and we, we think about it, and we're like, okay, her favorite animal is the giraffe. Maybe we can do something at the zoo. Um, so we decided to take a trip to the zoo to kind of scout it out a little bit. Um, if you ever have been to the Woodland Park Zoo, there's like right when you walk in, there's the kind of the place where the savanna area where sometimes the giraffes are there, but really they're usually at the giraffe barn, which is kind of around the way. So we, we hike over to the, to the giraffe barn, and part of the plan is that Chris is going to take pictures of the whole thing. So we're trying to figure out, okay, you can stand here, the giraffes will be there. Maybe if I'm hiding in the bushes taking pictures, this would work well. Um, so he's kind of crawling around through these bushes, and it must have looked weird because one of the zookeepers comes out and is like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and we explain the situation. Her name was Nora, and she gets super excited about it. So she's like, yes, let's do this. In fact, it would be great if you guys just come into the barn. You can feed the giraffes, and you can do it there. And we were like, this is amazing. <laughs> so 
we exchange information. She's like, I got to check with my boss. Um, come to find out you're actually not allowed to do that. Um, but since she kind of had promised it, they're going to let it slide this one time. Um, so we, we come up with this elaborate story that Chris's grandma is a zoo donor, which is true, but that, and that she won a giraffe feeding in like a raffle, which is not true. Um, and Chris even made this uh, like gift card to make it look legit. It was, very, it was very elaborate, and that was all Chris, so I can't take any credit. Um, so I'm exchanging emails with Nora to make sure everything goes, is going according to plan, and like five days before I'm gonna propose, she emails me and she's like, Brian, I got really bad news. One of the giraffes is super sick and we can't do it. Um, so it's off, I'm trying to rack my brain, what are we gonna do? We're, we, we decide to kind of go with plan B where we were gonna stand outside, kind of our original plan. Um, but I was super bummed, it's very sad. Um, and then actually the day before I'm going to propose, she, she emails me and she says, well, I have good news and bad news. Um, the bad news is the giraffe died. <laughs> um, and the good news is it's on. So now, <laughs> no more sick giraffe. We can feed the remaining giraffes. <laughs> so, you know, that was a little bit of mixed emotions, but I'm glad that we get to do it. Um, so the next morning, I head over to Amy's house to pick her up. There's actually a little bit of time to kill, and I am super nervous. Um, not that she's going to say no, but that the plan's not going to go right, or I'm going to do something to tip her off. So I end up kind of just sitting on my phone on the couch and reading about the Seahawks game the next day. And she actually gets really mad because I'm not talking to her. Um, to the point where her mom is like, you know, lighten up, Amy. It's, it's okay. And if you know Amy, that just makes her even madder. Um, so basically, we're in this huge fight. The car ride over, we're not talking. Um, it's just really awkward. Yeah, we pick up Chris and her good friend Lindsay, and she actually has me go sit in the back of the car with Chris, so it's not going well. Um, we get to the zoo, uh, we meet Nora, and we get to go back uh, to feed the giraffes, and that's when this happens. <laughs> So that's how we got engaged. I don't even know if she actually said yes, so, but here we are. Um, so this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of 2 Timothy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 in the New American Standard Bible. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. So do you like him? Should we keep him? <laughs> Amy is still trying to figure that one out. 
Uh, today we are starting, uh, I mean, uh, we are continuing in a series called Things That Matter. And the title of today's sermon is A Purpose-Driven Life. Um, you know, I'm the son of an immigrant, and I've kind of sort of been trained to work really, really hard. Because if you don't work hard, you don't make it. You don't survive. And so there's a kind of direct relationship between your work ethic and whether you get to eat or not. And so that was a really important life lesson that I learned that I still embody to this day. But looking at this title, I already feel tired. You know, is this what really life is about? Just having purpose all the time, front and center? And then that word driven. It's such an unforgiving, tyrannical word. You know, that I'm supposed to be driven in life. There is this kind of constant push. And so um, the title is a little bit misleading. Uh, but I want to take you on a sort of a thought journey. And I know that I've been away on a month-long sabbatical, and many of you last week expressed how much you missed me by mentioning how long my sermon was last week because you sort of got away from it for a while. Uh, and I, wanted, I want you to know I missed you too, and I'm going to make up for every minute I didn't preach for those four <laughs> weeks. So just keep telling me how much you miss me, and I'll keep telling you how much I miss you back. But look at these list of verses here. These are just some, not all. These are some and most of the action verbs in the chapter. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Entrust these to faithful men. These are very active words. Suffer hardship. That one's dramatic. Consider what I say. Remember Jesus Christ. Remind them. Solemnly charge. Be diligent. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. These are a lot of things to do and not do, isn't it? Is this really what the Christian faith is about? You know, and I think because Paul, like me, in some ways was a very uh, sort of uh, survival uh, of the fittest kind of guy, he worked really hard, and in fact, he even says, I work harder than you all. That's quite a boast that he made. Uh, but all of this falls into the category of what I would call discipline and choice. And I want you to think about this, that life requires that we be disciplined. Discipline, I would define it this way. You feel what you feel but you still do what you do. And that's the difference between immaturity and maturity or somebody that's undisciplined with somebody that is disciplined. We all feel things. We don't feel like waking up. But we do wake up because we are practicing discipline. You know, and a child, let's say a two-year-old who throws a tantrum, they're not being disciplined. They feel like throwing a tantrum. So they throw a tantrum and they make a scene, you know, in inconvenient places. But as grown-ups, we've learned to be more disciplined and we make a choice rather than just default to what we feel like. And so these two ideas of discipline and choice go together. And I do appreciate this idea and I think it's an integral part of how we succeed in life, how we do well. I really kind of 
mourn how our culture so much so is about preference and feelings and what you want. And it's about your passion and yourself. And you got to go find both of those things. And I'm a little bit tired of that. In fact, I'm more tired of it than the idea of discipline and making good choices. And that's partly what makes church life so hard these days or any kind of industry because it's such a consumeristic society. Culturally, the question on top of mind for marketers and for consumers is, what do they want? What do I want? What do I feel like? What's my preference? And we keep going down that path, and there seems to be no reprieve. Nobody catches a break. Ask anybody who works in the customer service industry if they enjoy their job. Ask them what it's like to be on the receiving end of a consumer who puts front and center their feelings and their preferences. It's a beast. It's really quite a a societal tyrant that we're all sort of under and dealing with. You know, and it's fine when you're the consumer and you get to sort of be rude and loud and get your way and threaten to write bad customer reviews or report them to the BBB or whatever it is that we do as consumers. But if we were to just be one person behind the person who's a consumer and we watch that sort of scene unfold in front of us, it doesn't take long for us to feel judgmental about the consumer in front of us demanding their rights. What rights? Rights to their preferences and wants. And so I think this is good all, all good medicine for our society. There is such a mandate to be and do these things regardless of whether we feel like it or not because at the end of the day, it really should not be about what we feel like. Feelings are important. You know, they, they serve as data points. They give us information, but they make poor leaders. The same thing can be extended out to culture in general. Culture is important. God loves the culture. But more than that, God wants to redeem the culture. Because though we are all in culture, culture, make, culture makes a poor leader in your life. Culture should not be the leader in your life because culture doesn't care about you, what's good for you doesn't help you to make good choices or to practice discipline and do what you should do, what you ought to do. Culture just tells you what is. Culture represents the least common denominator of an amalgamation of all of our preferences and feelings and wants. That's what culture is, and that's why culture shifts. That's why styles change and fashions move on from the last thing that was fashionable. And so discipline is important. As as much as I don't like the idea of having to do all these things, it's really, really important. Paul uh, gives us three metaphors here in this chapter. He uses the metaphor of a soldier, a metaphor of being an athlete, and the metaphor of being a farmer. And what do these three metaphors have in common? Discipline. And choice. Can you be a good soldier unless you embrace the idea of discipline? And the answer is no. Can you be a good athlete without embracing discipline as a way of life? And the answer is no. Can you be a good farmer if you just lived by your feelings and preferences? 
No, you have to embrace discipline as a way of life. And so in verse 1, Paul starts with, you therefore, my son, be. And so he gives Timothy a list of all these shoulds, things that Timothy should do, must do, choose to do, practicing discipline rather than just, hey, Timothy, what do you, what are you feel in today? Imagine the letter was just Paul asking questions, inquiring of Timothy about his feelings and his wants and preferences. Letter would have gone very differently. Instead, Paul says, Timothy, there are lots of distractions in life. There's silly talk and speculations and concerns, these anxieties. But you stay focused. You know what your purpose is. You live your life deliberately with intention. You live a disciplined life because our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are easily deceived. So you, Timothy, my son in the faith, practice discipline. Now, this is the uh, main theme. But one of the things that we miss if we just focus on these to-do verbs, these very action-packed verbs, is we miss the context how these disciplines are framed. And that's where I want to go next. Uh, how many of you remember the book uh, Clockwork Orange? Remember what it was about? It was first published in 1962. It was about a young man named Alex. And he was imprisoned for uh, lots of atrocious crimes. And, uh, but he uh, went through a brand new therapy, a virgin therapy of sorts, and this treatment seems to have cured Alex of the violence that he was prone to. And the author in the original book that he penned had a 21st chapter which uh, depicted Alex uh, desiring to be a dad and a family man, and seemingly he's lost his urge to commit those violent crimes that he was, you know, um, incarcerated for in the first place. Now, his editors didn't like that, and they made him take out chapter 21. And so the book ends sort of really sort of in a dark way where he doesn't have that change happen to him, and he returns to his violent ways. Now, 15 years after the initial release, probably most of us remember Clockwork Orange from the Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, that was made in the 70s, which depicted that edited version of the book. Uh, so 15 years later, the author, Anthony Burgess, uh, wrote a new work called A Clockwork Orange Resucked. And uh, in this uh, little writing that he did, he implores the world to forget about the Clockwork Orange that was published in 1962, but, uh, but to remember the original book that he wrote with chapter 21 in it about moral choice. And he writes this uh, in there. He says, uh, by definition, a human life is endowed with free will. He can use this to choose between good and evil. If he can only perform evil, then he is a clockwork orange, meaning that he has the appearance of an organism lovely with color and juice, but is in fact only a clockwork toy to be wound up by God or the devil, or since this is increasingly replacing both the almighty state. It is as inhuman to be totally good as it is to be totally evil. The important thing 
is moral choice. And what Alex Burgess is saying here is that what defines us as a human being, what makes us human is our ability and the imperative to be able to make moral choices. And he's affirming this idea that Paul is putting forth. You choose to live a deliberate life. You can make choices in your life. You can be a disciplined person. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know what kind of life you lived if you believe in yourself, that you have the ability to make choices and you have the ability to be disciplined. Now, my experience of my own life and the society that I see broadly around me is that we actually don't have as much ability to make moral choices as much as we think we do. Uh, one critic who was uh, responding to the author's um, you know, new essay titled The Clockwork Orange Resucked, he responds by saying, Anthony Burgess has not taken into account the addictive nature that's threaded into our human nature. Yes, on the one hand, we do have the ability to make moral choices, to live a deliberate life, to be focused and intentional. We can do that. But then the author critic says, how, for how long can we do that? Because his experience, and it's my experience, that all of us, every single one of us, have addictions in our life. We don't call them that, but we have compulsions, things to which we return time and again, seemingly without the sufficient ability to make good choices. And that's the nature of addiction that something overpowers us and our ability to choose fades and we become flooded with just the one thing we feel a compulsion to do or to not do. So this critic, he says this, <clears throat> I am talking about one thing and one thing only, how people actually act and whether they are under compulsion in certain situations. And so this is the uh, question underneath the imperative to be disciplined is, do you really have the ability to be disciplined throughout the course of your entire life until the race of your life is run and finished? Is that the way you want to live, holding it together? Now, if you actually uh, study the life of athletes and soldiers, or anybody who practices a level of, uh, who achieves a level of success in life by being disciplined, you know, it can range from being a, an athlete to a soldier to a model or, uh, you know, any, any discipline you can think of. They don't do it for 365 days a year. They train for a season, and then they compete. And then as soon as that competition is over, they build in times when they're not living disciplined anymore. You know, so people, let's say a model who's maintaining a certain weight, they don't weigh that. They don't look like that 365 days a year. They can't do it because it requires too much sacrifice. 
And no human will is capable of staying disciplined 24-7, 365 days a year for the rest of their lives. So on the one hand, here is Paul saying, Timothy, do this and do that and be this and be that. And don't do this and don't do that and don't be this. That all is good. But there's a larger context, in my opinion, if I'm going to succeed in life, because there is no way I can just keep doing. I can't just be an embodiment of discipline. And my challenge to you today is that very question. How good do you believe you can be for how long? And you know, I don't know about your human nature, but my human nature is such that if I am good for a short period of time or even one instance, I feel a desperate need to reward myself. But by not being good. You know, I, was, I paddled five miles yesterday. So I'm paddling and I was dripping sweat. I was working hard. And on the way back, I just felt I deserved to not paddle. So I just stopped paddling. I laid on my board, and I just drifted. And I had to paddle several more miles back because I drifted too far. <laughs> and it's a perfect picture how, of what my life looks like. I can hold it together with the best of them in some ways, but not for very long. And the very best of them, they can just hold it together a little bit longer than you. And they get paid a little bit more than you do. But that's the best picture of human achievement is temporary success, but defaulting to failure. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're here and you don't have a faith in Christ yet, you're a skeptic, what's your life game strategy? You know, what's your game plan? How are you going to hold it together for the rest of your life? Can you really do and be all that you're supposed to do and be? Like forever, every second? Who can do that? And so we have the verse that was read for us today, 20 and 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. These two verses represent the, in the Christian faith, the gospel context. And in my personal opinion, the only context, framework, that allows us to do and be all the things we're supposed to do and be. Let me unpack that for you here real quick. Uh, this idea of being a vessel is uh, throughout Scripture. It's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. I take it to be one of the most helpful metaphors uh, in life for me. It captures it for me. And these two verses, if you start reading it and dissecting it, but also letting it sort of hit your heart, you know, how does your heart feel? Uh, I feel like there's an invitation here. There's a sort of a broader uh, stroke 
that Paul is painting with here. And he says, you know, in God's house, on the planet Earth, in the universe, in your life, there are many kinds of vessels. And you don't have to be the very best vessel. You don't have to be a golden vessel or a silver vessel. You can be an earthen vessel. You know, you can, you can be what you choose to be. So there's a kind of freedom and choice that's uh, being uh, conveyed here. And then there's verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, and that operative word there is the word if. You know, there's sort of an invitation to grow up, to understand the nature of truth and consequences. If you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this won't happen. And you know, and that's kind of a more mature way to think about it. Peter, this is what I hear. Peter, if you want to be a higher capacity vessel, then work harder. Because if you do, then. And so there's a freedom and an invitation there, but it's also scary. Because if I don't do it, there isn't some automatic thing that's over-functioning on my behalf. It's like, there's real consequences, and I invite you to experience them, Peter. And I'm not sure I love that. But that's not the only thing that Paul is saying here. The, actually, the underlying theology behind these two verses, 20 and 21, is this. You don't exist for yourself. After all, you're not the content. You're a vessel. And what good is a vessel without its content? A vessel is created not for its own sake, but to serve a purpose. And the Christian gospel would say, actually, you don't exist for yourself. Bottom line, essentially, primarily, fundamentally, your life is not about you and your wants and your preferences. And if you go that way, you are actually going to be unhappy because your existential reason for existing, your existential reason is not you, but it's to serve a purpose beyond you. That's why you are depicted as a vessel, created, designed, hardwired to contain something of value beyond yourself. The Bible teaches that you have been bought with a price. Paul says of his own self, I have been bought with a price. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here, in, the, in these two verses, Paul is capturing the power, the idea of stewardship. That if you understand, begin to see your own self, and the days of your life as opportunities to serve, to give of yourself, not to get for yourself, but to give of yourself. If you start opening your eyes and seeing the world in this way, you begin to understand then how all of the commandments, all the shoulds begin to fall into place. My mother 
This was probably the second biggest uh, sermon that she preached to me uh, my growing up years. The first one was Peter be humble, and I've mentioned that one before. That was her biggest desire for me, that I be humble. The second thing was Peter, and this doesn't translate well. It sounds a little bit funny in the English language, but in Korean, uh, uh, it translates to, she'd always say, Peter, be a big vessel. You know, she would think about it in terms of size rather than kind. And Paul uses kind here rather than size. But she would say, be a big vessel. And she didn't have like a specific plan for me, but she, she was like, be ready, be willing, be, have a work ethic, have the right attitude, generally be focused and fit for whatever comes your way because you don't know what life and God will ask of you. So work hard, think smart, be fruitful, make impactful choices. And then she'd go far uh, further than that and point out people in my life that she felt were going the wrong way and becoming smaller by the day rather than larger by the day. You know, she'd point to uh, a friend of mine uh, that she didn't like me hanging out with him, and uh, she'd say, look at him. You see when he's hungry, you see what he does? He goes over there, he's got $3 in his pockets, and with those $3, he spends it all on a bag of chips and a bottle of soda. Not even a two-liter, but a little one just for himself. He eats those chips, he washes it down, and he's hungry 10 minutes later. That's bad choice-making, she'd say. You know, and she said, immigrants don't do that. You know, we buy rice with that, and we buy beans with that, and if we could eat for days. Why would you buy one bag of chips and one little bottle of soda just for yourself? That's short-term thinking. That's not the way you get big. She'd say this. There's another guy. He's, he was really into the military. He's really into guns. He's the one that got me into guns, and he eventually became a ranger, a sharpshooter. And I remember just when he was going through that whole system, came home with like Kevlar vests and uh, he, showed, he, he took apart his rifle and he showed me how to put it together. And there, I just I remember holding the rifle and just being awed by this guy. And my mother in high school said, Peter, you're never playing with him again. <laughs> and she set up a meeting with his parents and broke us up. She wanted me to be a big vessel. By the way, today, to this day, I still love guns. I'm a city boy, and when I first came to our church, we had a, I know, I just got political there for some of you. Um, I'm not, I'm just a boy who likes guns. But uh, there was a small group that met together at Rob DePron's house around guns, and I joined the group, and they were like, what are you doing here? Who are you? We don't know you. We thought you don't like guns and stuff. But I do, because of him. Um, but my mom broke us up. You know, and she said, Peter, strive, understand this idea of vessel. Be ready for the content that God's going to fill you with. You know, she'd always say that. I have a friend, um, and he's probably one of my most remarkable friends. He's a pastor in Boston, and he actually took over the church that I planted in Boston, and uh, He's doing really well. I'm really proud of him. But none of that com uh, matters compared to the personal thing that he did in his life. He and his wife adopted 11 children. 11. Seven of them are refugees uh, from Africa. 
you know, who saw atrocities, who, had, who lost their siblings and family members uh, in atrocious acts, uh, you know, and he, so he rescued them, and he's got other kids, and so there's 11 of them all together, all of them adopted. And the last time I talked to him, I asked this, I asked this question of him again. I said, Dave, do you think that you actually are a better father to these kids than somebody like me who has kids of his own that he biologically, uh, you know, uh, how do you say that? I'm not a woman. I don't want to say gave birth to. Biologically brought forth? Okay. I can't hear you. Fathered. Fathered. Biologically fathered. That's it. And he said, you know, uh, in all humility, I do believe so. I said, you know, that's how I experience you. That's why I asked the question. Uh, why do you think you're a better father than I am? And he said, because in my heart of hearts, I know they don't belong to me. He said, I know that I have to be a steward. He said, I know every day I have to make choices to play the role that they need me to play. And then I feel this sense that I have to give an account for the job I did with these kids. And I felt like you did, just moved and touched and kind of broken about that. And I believe this, that our kids don't belong to us anyways. It just makes it more real if we adopt the kids but just because we biologically father them or mother them doesn't mean we're not stewards of them. They don't belong to us. The dedication you saw today happened because the parents understand this kid, as much as it came from them, actually didn't come from them. They came from God. And you have a job. I see Polly Lindbergh nodding her head who adopted many kids. Polly, does this resonate with you? John? They're nodding. They are a total gift. And if you understand your life and your children and your job and your every day as you being a steward of the things that belong to God, and if you understand your relationships as something you have to give an account for one day because these relationships, these people in your life, they don't belong to you. You're invited to play a role in their life. You're invited to be a good influence on them. You're invited to see them as God sees them. And to do as God would do, then you begin to understand why you exist. And not only that, but how you are meant to exist as a steward, as somebody striving in their understanding of what it means to be a vessel. You're created to be filled. And if you love you don't love with your own love. You say, God, I'm just a vessel. If you want me to love this person, I need your love. And then God's love somehow, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, fills you. And you are a conduit of God's love. And if you say, God, I don't know how to see these people, because my own eyes see it through self-centeredness. I want to use them and discard them. I'm opportunistic. I'm selfish. I have my own needs and my own hunger and thirst to reckon with. And so when I see them, they just look 
like consumables to me because I'm a consumer. And then you say, God, but give me your eyes. How do you see them? And then you begin to see them differently. And to the extent that you understand that your primary way of being, that you're invited to be, is to be a steward, then you begin to understand what it means to strive to be a vessel of honor. To be a vessel of honor doesn't mean that you have honor. It means that you have honorable things inside of you, content given to you for you to be a steward of. And that's what a vessel is. A vessel is a steward. I want to end with this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your salvation ultimately is not about just you. Our highest calling is to be a servant of God, to be a conduit of God's presence here on earth. And I want to invite you to think about what it means that you, your, the life you now live in the flesh is not your own but it has been bought with a price that God owns you and you are called to be a steward of all the days of your life. Every day you get to live, you get to live for somebody else, to play a part, to work a role. We go back to verse 1, which says, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I, I confess here, um, and I think speaking for many of us, that um, we really are kind of tired of living for ourselves. We're not that interesting. We're not that good, that beautiful, that worthy, all on our own. But I think we're misconstruing how we are supposed to be. So I pray that this deep truth, that we are created to be stewards, to be vessels, to be conduits for your sake. I pray that this can sink in and take hold of us. I pray that you would help us to uh, stop being so consumeristic, so individualistic, so self-centered and oriented in our thinking and view of each other and our children and all the things in our life and our work. We're feeling fatigue about those things and that way of being. So I pray that you would save us from ourselves, pull us out of that, save us onto being your servants, embracing our call as vessels. God, fill us with your love. Fill us with your vision for how life ought to be lived. And from that, help us to find a purpose and meaning and live driven by that call 
to be a servant. God, for our church in particular, we're trying to fight the opt-in culture and just the consumeristic culture that we bring into the church. Help us to understand what it means to be committed, to be here from a deeper place rather than just our appetites and preferences. And for those of us here who are not yet uh, followers of Christ, help us to wrestle with what else alternative is there if we are not living for you as stewards? What else is there? Help us to wrestle with that question and, and maybe find you as the answer. So I lift up our church. I lift up all our uh, individual lives to you and ask for your help in uh, transforming us. In Jesus' name, amen.